The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of its hosts, guests, or callers, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of WTBR-FM, its management, other producers, or sponsors. Welcome to Beyond, an hour-long program of science fiction and fantasy. I am your host, Beverly Prentice. I hope you enjoy the program. If so, please drop a line to beyond3x5 at gmail.com. Proxima Centauri Blues by Michael Cassett The night was moonless. By deliberate and now obviously poor choice, since it caused Lucas Teal to stumble so badly while taking his first step out of the Neutron SUV that he twisted his knee. That brief act triggered a cascade of second thoughts and doubts. At 57, he was too old for skulking around the country in the dark, especially on such an unlikely and risky mission. He braced himself on the neutron, all too aware that the vehicle had admitted noises when he opened the door, possibly dooming this maneuver from the start. He tried to regulate his breathing. He felt his left knee, noting its tenderness and swelling, but after testing it, he decided he could walk unhampered. Whether he should or not, well, that was the question. He had disabled his phone's geo-tracking apps, both open and secret, before leaving Klein's Corners. Now he pulled a rucksack out of the neutron and withdrew a set of night vision goggles, arranging them around his neck. Then came the pistol, a 3D-printed artisanal 9mm that had been surprisingly difficult to acquire, at least without leaving a record. A confidence born of hours at the range, he checked the safety in chamber, then slipped it into the small of his back, as he had learned. He checked the remaining items in the rucksack, a coil of rope, a roll of duct tape, and, of course, the injectors. The inventory now struck him as inadequate, leaving him feeling unprepared. He had been having second and third and fiftieth thoughts, Ever since deciding on this mission three months ago, he had performed hundreds of simulations as he laid out the steps, just as he had with every decision on the express. He knew that at some point, better was the deadly enemy of works just fine. This would work just fine. This applied to the micro-action. Micro-matters were equally challenging, given the travel restrictions. Luke had only one border to cross, but it was from Great Texas to the New Mexico region of Pacifica, one of the strictest barriers in North America. He had chosen the most remote checkpoint, near Hobbs, where his tech status and Austin residence, not to mention the nicely forged invitation from Los Alamos, had gotten him past patrols on both sides. Then he had to endure the slow, nasty drive on back roads, taking care to avoid the regional police, and, for that matter, citizens who might resent 
his GT tags. He had only needed to spend one night in a motel, where he tried to sleep through the roars of the I-40 transit corridor, as well as the moans of more personal activities by his neighbors, desperate humans clinging to the public and private rituals that were contributing to the destruction of the planet, from which there was no escape. He gently closed the car door and limped away. He had studied the terrain in visual and topographic modes and had, in fact, visited his target twice. So he had some idea of the challenges he faced. And when he finally left the neutron behind in the deep darkness, he felt a bit of relief. He could walk with only twinges from his damaged knee. He forced himself to concentrate on the mission, as if to urge him on. Lucas suddenly saw in the west a huge bright light moving west to east. There was the express, thirty years of his life, reduced to a bright star sliding across the night sky. And the reason for this misadventure. He paused and analyzed his situation, this turning point, where his next action would determine the shape of the rest of his life. He had experienced this before, but never with time to reflect or turn away. No turning away, not after what had happened. Lucas had not only studied the topography, he had prepared himself for the cold, clear desert evening. The sky was insanely clear, a collection of brilliant lights and the gauzy smear of the Milky Way, and of course the bright moving point that was the express. That sight emboldened Lucas, giving him his first moment of happiness since leaving Austin. He pulled up the night vision goggles, which illuminated the landscape with greenish alien light. What might be seen on the surface of Venus, or even Proxima Centauri B. After checking the pistol, he adjusted the rucksack and began striding up the hill toward Agnes Deloche's home. Hidden by the junipers and pines, even as it perched on a ridge, it was visible with every other step. One light on in what he knew to be the master bedroom. Perfect. He was twenty miles south of Santa Fe, near the town, to use a term inappropriately, of Lamy. This was a collection of perhaps a dozen residences and a pair of long-abandoned businesses on an equally abandoned rail line. There was once a working quarry here, but it had failed two hundred years ago. The overwhelming impression was one of desertion. The sole occupied residence sat to his right, some misshapen barn that glowed like a jack-o'-lantern. Lucas wondered who lived there, some doctor or lawyer, or more likely some retiree, possibly from the Express, since it had employed tens of thousands over its lifespan which was, if Lucas had anything to do with it, nowhere near ended. The first fifty meters of the journey were easy as he hiked the level ground. At this time of year, the surface was hard-packed dirt or gravel, the vegetation well-spaced. His chosen route was a canyon. However, and as soon as he entered it, his speed slowed. The climbing wasn't especially difficult, but the slope was steep and he kept sliding, 
Soon, though, he found a slow, purposeful rhythm that would allow him to cover the four hundred meters to the house in less than an hour, at which time the breaking and entering phase would commence, and he would confront Agnes Deloitte. She was variously the third or second richest human on earth, the provider of the Express's seed money, the instrument by which hundreds of billions more had been raised, and the one who had pulled the plug on the Express before it could be completed, dooming humanity to an existence limited to the solar system and ruining the lives of thousands of engineers and other workers, notably that of Chief Engineer Lucas Thiel. Coming to the Express directly out of Caltech, Lucas had worked closely with Deloitte for three decades, even though for the first eight years, as he moved up the org chart, he had no direct dealings with her. She was the distant goddess, the queen, the sorceress, the most powerful member of the powerful consortium that managed the gigantic challenge of constructing an asteroid-sized starship in orbit. But when Lucas ascended to the chief engineer post, jumped over half a dozen senior engineers to the resentment of at least ten of them, he began to deal with Agnes directly. The contact was unavoidable. Though she had been born to wealth and had married more, twice, she was also a world-class systems engineer with half a dozen patents in addition to founding AGC. The propulsion and power powerhouse that became a prime contractor for the Express, which meant that he had total justification for making suggestions or even issuing orders on technical matters. As far as Lucas knew, no one ever complained. Like everyone who worked directly with her, no matter the gender, everyone was a bit in love with Agnes, especially Lucas. It was her outright genius, as well as her wit, and, Lucas had to admit, her physical beauty. She was tall, broad-shouldered, blue-eyed, quick to smile. Regal was the word Luke had settled on. In spite of Agnes's frequent episodes of clumsiness and untidiness, she was notorious for missed buttons and spilled drinks. Her voice was her real weapon, throaty versatile, frequently laughing. She often sang bits of popular music. In meetings, she was always the center of attention, even when others were making presentations, even when she was nothing but a 3D image, and not because of her looks or star power, but usually for her insights. But their last meeting, three years past, had been the worst moment in Lucas's life worse than his separation, which it resembled in some ways. He was in residence rotation, living aboard Express in one of the few finished sections of the giant structure, when summoned at the odd hour of 11 p.m. He found Agnes looking unusually harried, annoyed, tired, her tiny office unlit. There's no need for preliminaries, she said, without even the usual hello. The Express is being shut down effective immediately. Terminate your staff. Details on severance and other HR crap is in your mail. Lucas had no chance to process the first sentence. The Express being shut down? After three decades and $200 billion 
with years of work remaining before the first launch? He tried to speak, but Agnes, who still possessed the voice of authority, in spite of her obvious distress, held up a hand. I'm feeling everything you're feeling may be worse. She wouldn't look at him. For a moment, he felt more pity than anger. This emotional shift allowed him to say, When did you find out? Yesterday. Now he was angry again. Agnes had waited all this time to tell him the worst news he would ever hear. Her phone and screen were flashing every other second in the darkness. Of course, Agnes had hundreds of direct reports, and who knew how many indirect contacts. Can you tell me why? What happened? New data. Everything has changed. We've lost funding. Pick one or all three. Even as she said this, Agnes had refused to look at him. The loss of the Express and its mission was bad enough. What was worse for Lucas was her refusal to communicate. She was suddenly a stranger, a shattering change. The last stretch to the top of the canyon was the steepest and thickest with vegetation. Lucas had to stop, turn around, go sideways several times. He felt thorns and brambles tucking at his vest. At one point, he had to take off the rucksack and hug it as he edged through the brush. He was so close to the house now that he could see it as a long, low, single-story structure blotting out the stars just 50 meters to the west. There was a cabana in front of him, dark and apparently deserted. Thanks to his visits here, especially one in which Agnes's partner of the moment, a tipsy young man named Tobit, was present. Lucas knew what obstacles he faced. Tobit had chosen to brag about his knowledge of his partner's security systems. She's got cameras and motion detectors all over this, he'd said. They were standing on the front door looking north toward a scattering of other remarkable homes, including one with its own observatory dome. In spite of that, Agnes's house was relatively isolated. At the end of a twisting narrow dirt road, that itself was the end point of two other twisting little used roads. Has she had intruders? This was five years before Lucas had conceived this evening's adventure. Tobit had shrugged. Not in our time together. Of course, we haven't been here that much. Lucas knew that Agnes had three other residences in Dublin, Seattle, and Houston. The Santa Fe house was the least of the four in size or notoriety. What about that way? Lucas had pointed over the house to the steep ridge to the south, overlooking Lamy. Tobit had laughed. Oh, she says anyone crazy enough to climb that ridge deserves to get her. And now, deserving or not, Lucas reached the top of the ridge. He took several moments to breathe, then test his knee on level ground. This took more time than he planned, allowing for more hesitation. He might well have turned around, but the thought of retreating down that canyon was too daunting. So, committed, he gathered his energy, checked his pistol three times, straightened his back, then stepped toward the house. And then, shockingly, he felt a buzzing in his pocket. His phone, of course, which he was sure he had turned off. The front door is open. Wipe your feet when you come in, your old friend Agnes. Agnes Deloitte had been unusually quiet for the past year, but Lucas had set his tracking apps to note any mention of her. 
and three weeks ago they produced a passing mention of an Agnes Deloitte sighting in Santa Fe, bringing Lucas to this dark mountainous ridge on his even darker mission. Happy not to have to break a window, Lucas walked around the house to the front door. This was a trickier maneuver than he'd anticipated since there was no exterior light, and the gravel grounds of the property were not only uneven, they were equipped with various pipes and hoses, any one of them an obstacle in daylight and vastly more dangerous in the dark. He got to the front with only one major stumble, then faced the challenge of reaching the huge thick door hidden in a dark alcove down a flight of flagstone stairs. On the same visit where he'd surveyed the security systems with Tobit, Lucas had slipped on those same steps. That had been a winter night, though, with frost on the steps. Tonight was cold, but not icy. Lucas had to put his shoulder into the door to move it, another thing he remembered from earlier visits. The entryway was lit, fortunately. Lucas had to fight the urge to act like a guest, removing his rucksack and jacket and hanging them in the huge closet to his right. Before he could make any sort of move, a woman appeared from his left, the living room. You have to be teal, she said. I'm Elena. She was perhaps forty, on the thick side, with short graying hair and a weary voice. She's waiting for you in the library. She nodded to Lucas's right. Do you want anything to drink? No, thanks. She pointed to his rucksack. You can leave all that unless you have to shoot someone. Well, he might yet. Elena's dismissive attitude only made him more determined to follow through on his mission, though Agnes's knowledge of it had shaken him. Given her skills and systems, he should have expected as much. As he followed Elena, he could see through the distant wall the single light of Lamy in the near distance. All else, including his car's hiding place, was dark. The floor in Agnes's house was tile, heated, of course and Elena's sandals made slipping and slapping sounds. Lucas's rubber-soled boots were, by design, silent. Elena immediately turned right into the library. In Lucas's earlier visits, the library was a typical den, equipped with screens and devices tastefully disguised, as well as several dozen shelves of actual books. The shelves remained, but the books were gone replaced by, on one wall, the thinnest video screen Lucas had ever seen. It was like a gossamer. The other shelf held boxes of medications and bits of medical equipment. A third of the space was taken up by oxygen tanks and medical monitoring equipment, and a medical support chair. And in that chair, a shrunken human being, wired up and tottering. Oh, no, no, no. This was not the Agnes Deloitte he knew. This woman, clearly confined to a powered chair and life support, looked to be a shrunken, fragile, ninety years of age. Hello, Lucas, this being croaked. She, or it, raised her left hand in a grotesque greeting. Agnes, it was more a tentative statement than a greeting. Lovely to see you again. Forgive the circumstances. With some effort, Agnes turned to Elena, who had been standing by silently. We'll be fine. Though clearly not convinced, Elena left, blessing Lucas with a look of warning as she went.
Now Agnes moved toward the rucksack and made a valiant effort at a smile. Did you actually come here to kill me? The whole notion now struck Lucas as insane, as it had many times during the last year. It was an option. Can we table it for the moment? What happened to you? My heart sort of exploded about a year ago. I was in Seattle, and you'll love the irony here. It was three weeks to the day after I resigned as chair of the consortium. <coughs> Each phrase clearly cost Agnes. Lucas realized that he would have to do most of the speaking, assuming the conversation survived this exchange of updates. I didn't know you had. We have had a blackout of all express and consortium news for quite some time. Oh, I know. I'm sorry to hear about your heart. She shifted in her chair, and the various monitors made distressing beeps as the indicators changed. Well, after the heart problem, technically an aortic failure, I had a stroke. Predictable, but really there was no satisfaction in knowing it was likely to happen. A long, agonized moment followed. I can't move anything on my right side. Jesus. After a long pause with real, with real tears forming in her eyes, she sighed. What no one expected is the aneurysm that followed the stroke. She pointed to her chest. Can't they operate? If I hadn't blown out my heart and had a stroke. But the aneurysm means, with all the miracles of the 22nd century medicine, I'm essentially a goner. With a good hand, she wiped away the tears, and a pitiful one most of the time. Lucas recalled the bright promise of the Proxima Express, the dream of a new post-war century, where humanity would extend its range from Earth, Moon, and Mars to the stars itself. Two thousand pioneers submitting to cryonic suspension, firing out of Earth orbit on a 400-year journey to Proxima Centauri B, the nearest potentially habitable exoplanet. There had been so many volunteers for the Express that the consortium had resorted to a lottery, which was a huge challenge in itself, especially when a world court ruled in favor of plaintiffs who had been excluded and forced a redo, which triggered another wave of lawsuits involving winners from the first round who had signed over their assets to the consortium. Some of those were still in litigation, and in Lucas's view, would be still on the day the Express reached Fox Centauri B. Then the construction had stretched beyond its twenty years to thirty, with completion nowhere in sight. All of this added to the immense technical challenges of the radical new propulsion system, as well as the cryonic suspension protocol. A hundred test subjects had been in those chambers now for eleven years. What would they think when they awoke? Not at Proxima Centauri B, but looking down at Earth. But having signed over their assets to the consortium in the past, emerging now as paupers, their fate was another reason Lucas had chosen to act. There was, of course, his own personal motivation— to ride the express on its long, long mission, to say farewell to blue planet Earth and become a resident of PCB. This hadn't been his goal when he joined the express. 
Benny was simply eager to have a job, and a fascinating, unique one at that. And during his first 25 years, he had not changed his mind. But the accelerating deterioration in human life on Earth caused him to think that a 400-year hibernation followed by decades of pioneer life might be the wiser choice. He still wouldn't have made the effort if Corrine hadn't left him. They had met working on the Express. Corrine was years younger and new to the program, where she specialized in life support and hibernation systems. They circled each other for years, Corrine commencing, enjoying, and ending a number of entanglements while Lucas had none longer than a few days' duration. You were too entranced by Agnes Deloitte, Corrine had later decreed. In spite of that looming presence, once they connected, they had a long, loving relationship, or so Lucas believed. No children, which was a common choice among the Express team. They had argued about it. What if your children don't want to go along? Would you force them? Corrine said. Would it be any better to give birth at PCB? Lucas had snapped. The decision would still be made for them. Lucas had convinced himself that their relationship was still sound, even through long separations. But after the cancellation, as both floundered in their search for new careers, Corrine had commenced an affair with a man she had known since secondary school. Her subsequent pregnancy had not only ended her marriage to Lucas, it had proved that Corrine was never committed to the project or to Lucas. Only when she was gone from his life did Lucas realize how important Corrine was to him. He had been sitting around his tiny, nasty apartment in Austin for years now, alone and miserable, and growing angrier every day. Agnes gestured toward the rucksack with what Lucas now knew to be her one good hand, the left. What else is in there? Hammer, rope, injector, burner phone, water. So the other options were drug me, take me hostage, something along those lines. Yes, don't tell me you think my death or inconvenience would revive the Express. A restart would be great, but more to make people aware, let them know that you and the Consortium were killing their future. Please, the Express was never a future for more than a few thousand people. Those that would have traveled, yes, but thousands and millions of others would have been inspired and would follow. We never thought it was the only mission, Agnes groaned, then with the purity of a stroke victim said, you idiot. We could barely afford one express. It would take a hundred years and a massive improvement in the environment and political situation to do a second one. He knew that. Rising seas, violent storms, droughts and floods, millions of people forced to be climate refugees, not to mention constant regional wars that threatened to go larger than the barest opportunity and global plagues every decade for the past 90 years. More reason to retrieve and revive the Express. You left it 80% complete. The decision had baffled and infuriated him. And though he'd lived three years since the cancellation, time, one might think, to get over it, hearing Agnes Deloitte triggered all his violent feelings again. His family history colored his feelings and fueled his rage. His mother had worked for Google until artificial intelligence put it out of business. 
Her mother had worked for Intel, assembling processors until the plant closed and devastated their Bay Area community. Her father, Lucas's great-grandfather, had been a steel worker in Gary, Indiana. It seemed that each generation of Teals suffered the same abuse, the same sudden, permanent disappearance of a job after years of steady work, the same devastation. And his grandfather had undoubtedly suffered something similar, probably making gas lanterns when electric lights took their place. Lucas had hoped to break the chain even at the cost of leaving Earth altogether. Agnes was talking. Why do you think we made such a drastic decision? Lack of money, lack of political will, it wasn't just me or the team you screwed. It was all those poor bastards who signed up to go. Oh, yes, the express lottery. For a moment, Lucas saw the pre-crisis Agnes, the proud, powerful woman who had no tolerance for fools and their notions. There's no point going back through that nightmare. She waved her good hand toward a wooden chair that seemed to have been imported from New England in 1750. As Lucas sat, Agnes reached to her left for a cup and missed it. The cup hit the stone floor with a loud metallic thud, its lid popping open and a great deal of liquid spilling. <sighs> Agnes said a word she had uttered a thousand times in Lucas's hearing, but never so poorly. Lucas rose to pick up the cup, but Elena swooped in and beat him to it. It was clear that these accidents happened frequently, since the caregiver carried a mop as well as a replacement cup. She placed the latter on the table next to Agnes and with minimum effort cleaned up the spill, all the while staring at Lucas, who now stood awkwardly to one side. That's twice today, Elaine said, apparently keeping score. Maybe I'll reach three, Agnes said. A new record. If you can. Elena gathered up her gear, still speaking to Agnes, but looking at Lucas. She said, don't let him tire you out. Can I still let him shoot me? That caused Elena to turn back. That's neither funny nor proper. Say anything like it again and I'll notify support. Then she left. Lucas was completely confused now, flailing between sympathy, if not outright pity for Agnes, yet unwilling to let go of his anger. And as he touched the weapon by his side, his mission, he couldn't let 20 minutes of strange, if pleasant dealings, make up for three years of bitter resentment and plotting. Now he also wondered about this support. Who did that term mean, if not Elena? Were there others in the house or standing by, ready to roll in? And if so, would they be armed? Lucas had planned a kidnapping and was prepared for violence against Agnes. He was not eager or ready for a shootout. At the moment, Agnes was sipping from a replacement cup. God, this is terrible. Don't you laugh at me. The last words came out harshly. If you want this to end peacefully, Lucas said, you need to give me a better option. Maybe you could start with the real reason, whether it was the lottery, the lawsuit, some technical issue, some big loss of political support. I will, Lucas. Dear, confused, desperate man, know this. The Express is dead for all time to come, but not for the reasons you think. Not money in politics or failed tech. She took another drink of whatever fluid was in that cup. You've never heard the term Beacon Flash? No, it's a military code name. 
from 1952, I believe. Fascinating, but not especially relevant. That half-smile again. There was once a secret surveillance program, Project Scope, designed to detect missiles and other objects in space that might be hostile to the U.S. survey. Lucas waited. Given Agnes's state, he expected her to wander around key information when speaking. Who knew what damage the stroke had done to her cognitive functions? Project Scope found a major anomaly, not in Earth orbit, but an Earth-crossing trajectory. It was given the codename Beacon Flash. That happened a dozen times in the past century. This one was real. It was huge, asteroid-sized object that came from beyond the solar system, though proof took decades. Fine. So we found some alien space probe in the last century, a fairly big deal, but in addition to being artificial, it was inhabited. Now this was new, as shocking as it was unexpected. By what or whom? Aliens, beings, creatures like us? Agnes took a moment to consider her answer. Not physically, but in other ways distressingly so. She offered nothing more on the subject, a pause that tortured Luke. This was his lifelong dream, to discover alien life, and intelligent life at that. I can't believe it was unknown for such a long time. The vehicle was taken to be a comet. Aside from the three astronomers who have been read into the project, it still is. Where is it? It's the same hello-incentric orbit it had. When first discovered, I, it hasn't even maneuvered. Just fallen in toward the sun, then swooped back out toward the Kuiper belt. That seems strange. Not if you want someone to think you are a comet. She uttered a wheezing laugh that sounded like a leaking valve. This was too much information for anyone in Lucas's current state. He couldn't decide whether to put his gun aside and pull up the nearest chair or fire. His pistol? Into the nearest wall just to get Agnes to tell him everything, immediately. If we'd known about this encounter with aliens a hundred-odd years ago, we might not have felt the expresses we did, or at all. Agnes was shaking her head and giving her impairment looking even more grotesque, but her voice was clear. It's hard to believe, but until three years ago, we weren't in contact. Didn't they, I don't know, say hello, here we are? They tried. They also did some probing, just as we did with other planets in our solar system. They must not have liked what they found. That seems to be the case. With some difficulty, Agnes reached toward the table next to her for a remote tablet. Once she successfully tapped the right code, the filmy screen to her right, Lucas's left, came alive. For a moment, he was disoriented. The screen had the conventional rectangular shape and aspect ratio, but the image that appeared was not only oval, it seemed to pulse and flow, changing shape and size with the regularity of a heartbeat. He wasn't sure what he was seeing for several minutes. There were no title documents, no cover sheet, just a notice of unauthorized possession and access forbidden, but with no mention of a controlling agency. Then an image of a rocky planetoid, half in blazing sunlight, half in darkest shadow. It reminded Lucas of a free weight, thick at its poles, though also lopsided. Behold, 
The beacon flashed starship. It sure doesn't look like ours. The human, conceived, designed, built express was a huge symmetrical cylinder studded with an antenna and blisters with a giant umbrella-like shield at one end. It looked every centimeter a machine. No ports that I can see unless they're on the other side or in the shadow. No antenna, no shuttlecraft. There's no reason it should. Lucas had to admit the truth of that. Even in human engineering, there were often radically different solutions to design. That's not the only way in which they are different. There were more images now of varying clarity and perspective. Lucas realized that at least half of them came from the same source, likely a space probe or a flyby. They captured a planetoid and hollowed much of it out, creating a whole environment, an entire ecosystem. Impressive. We had to build from scratch. Agnes was shaking her head, a horrifying sight. As their planetoid starship evolved, they began to inhabit it. This process took several hundred years, and even when it was complete, the beacon vessel continued to orbit its home planet for hundreds of additional years. Seems wasteful. They were evolving a new subspecies and creating a new society suited to life in an artificial habitat. They had a propulsion system, more powerful than ours, but they were still anticipating a flight time of over a thousand years. And by the time they left, they'd already been operating for half that change, but yes. In his youthful fantasies and more mature considerations, Lucas had never imagined such a delay. In his mind, the goal was to complete the express and launch it as soon as possible. You can't get there until you start. But the beacons had proved him wrong. Still, that's insane. They think our plan, taking humans and genetic materials and animals born on Earth and stuffing them into strange habitat, is equally insane. How did we finally make contact? They noted the express and started pinging it. I never heard anything about this. The very first pulse was shared with me and ultimately four others. Linguist, astronomer, historian, engineer. I could have been the engineer. You were downhill at the time. The fury he had felt for years, the pure anger that flared almost weakly, even now, surged again. He grabbed the pistol, which was sitting next to his hand, and waved it. You know, I'd have been on the next ship to the express, Agnes gestured with a good hand. This is the reason, she said with surprising vigor. You were known to be temperamental, not a good fit, for a team communicating with the beacons. It's not that you froze me out. It's that you used this first contact as a pretext to kill the express. It is far more complicated. Sit down. Learn. You remember how. His fever vanished as quickly as it rose. Without a word, he sat down again, placing the pistol beside him, within reach. Now the screen showed a sequence of astronomical images featuring a star system that was definitely not the sun's. Then several images of a brown, blue, and white planet. Agnes continued her narration, though with increasing difficulty. The beacons share our taste for oxygen and our preference for a certain gravitational pull. How far away is their home world, anyway? Agnes actually wheezed at that point. 
In different circumstances, Lucas would have thought she was laughing. By interstellar standards, not far at all. 4.24 light years. Then she paused, as much to let Lucas do as to gather energy. It was one of her old tricks. Your homeworld is Proxima Centauri B. He tried to accept that datum, though he saw the inevitability of the beacon's choice. If you were going to launch a starship, of course you would send it to the nearest habitable planet, which, from Proxima Centauri, happened to be in the system of Sol, a.k.a. planet Earth. Agnes seemed to have reached the last image in the beacon flash collection, or her willingness to share. Lucas rose and edged past her, passing enough to smell medicinal alcohol, what could have been burning plastic and something else. Most unpleasant of all, death. If Agnes noted his movement or scared, she didn't show it. The door to the small office directly beyond the library was open, and its windows faced north, where Lucas had seen several flashes of light. Lightning at this hour? While watching the beacon presentation. The sky was dark now. He turned back to Agnes. What stopped them from settling on Earth? They were present in our solar system shortly after World War II. Had access to all our radio and television and music and comedy and drama. And horrific news of human barbarism. This will go better for both of us. If you cease your interruptions. Here was the pre-aneurysm, Agnes. They confessed to barbarism of their own, driven by overpopulation, lack of resources. She took another pause, obviously gathering her strength like a high diver on the platform. This is only my guess, based on the fact that I never communicated with the same Mika twice. But they might be more violent than we are. That was alarming. But again, why shouldn't they be? Wasn't there an old theory that races had to be violent and tough to survive in the galaxy? Now he was even more curious. So what do they look like, these interstellar savages? We must have pictures. Our contact has been text and image-based. They have not shown themselves, nor have we. They must know what we look like from all those broadcasts. Of course, but our team made a model based on what we know now of PCB and their vessel. On the screen, there was a nicely rendered image of a winged being. Not a bird, not a dinosaur ancestor, but something in between. Two wings and a head. Thank goodness for bilateral symmetry. That might be the oddest prejudice, Agnes said. PCB is 40% mountainous, 50% ocean with only a small amount of flatter coastal land, with constant winds. Lucas was feeling overwhelmed, but he had to admit the truth. Why communicate now? At last we reach our point. Good. Because I'm very tired. Agnes breathed in, then said, Their vessel is breaking down. On the screen were several close-ups of the surface of the beacon vessel, showing obvious damage in the form of one large, jagged crater with glowing edges and outgassing. Machines that could have come from human designers were in mid-crawl around and just inside the crater. I guess we found the flaw in their very slow model of interstellar travel. Imagine how unfunny that is to me. Why do you care? Lucas immediately regretted the comment. 
but Agnes didn't issue a caustic reply, and Lucas was finally convinced that she was truly dying. My legacy matters, she said, now sounding weaker than ever. There are thousands of beacons. They will need to live somewhere. Soon, Lucas had watched any number of alien invasion dramas in his lifetime, most of them presenting the near destruction of the human race, saved only by some plucky invention or miraculous vulnerability on the part of the alien marauders. He could not think of a concept in which the aliens were like idealized human explorers, benign creatures merely looking for new homes in the wilder universe. Assuming that description applied to humans, at times staffers on the express, usually under the influence of drugs or alcohol, wargamed a scenario where Earth people reached PCB and found it inhabited. What do we do then? Lucas had asked on occasion. Ashlyn Latham, an obscenely talented engineer who seemed to straddle all categories from gender to ethnic identity to basic humanity, said, kill them all and let the universe sort them out. This was harsh and cynical even by Latham's standards, and a volley of protest resulted. What's the alternative, Latham said. Turn around and come home? There was talk of negotiating for a homeland, but everyone objected to that. Look how well that's worked here. Just call it the human reservation or camp. One participant wondered if the two races couldn't arrange a swap or exchange of land. No one had bothered to imagine the situation reversed. Aliens wanting to settle on Earth. What are we going to do? No one knows. Ever since my collapse, we are no longer in communication. Agnes's voice was a whisper now. She slumped, literally shrinking as Lucas watched. And the beacons have not responded to anyone else. None of your crack team? The beacons rejected them. They want a contact, I know, but just then Elena ran down the hallway. Lucas saw her through the library door. Light flashed through opposite windows. Lucas tensed. He turned from the screen to Agnes, who was staring past him now, her eyes almost dead. He could hear steps and a voice from the living room. Elena talking to someone. You were distracting me until the cops arrived. Yes, she breathed. But I also felt you deserved to know the truth. He was on his feet again, slinging the rucksack onto his back, raising the pistol. Was this the truth? As complete as I have it, Agnes wheezed. Now, please... Shoot me before you try to escape. And maybe she told him, knowing he'd never lived to share. Lucas raised the pistol and aimed it at Agnes's head. But he couldn't pull the trigger now, not even to release her from her horrific state. Letting you live is my best revenge. He shifted his rucksack and sprinted out of the room past Elena, who was lurking by the front door to the exit he knew existed on the eastern wing. He plunged through it into the night just in time to see two vehicles working their way down the twisting, dangerous road. All he could do now was slide out the door back into the night onto the slippery gravel heading for the canyon. He felt stupid. He felt betrayed. He also marveled at the truth about the beacons, but absorbing, much less acting, on that discovery could wait. He ran back toward the canyon and slid down the slope. His knee ached for real, but he would have to suffer it. What was he to do next? Flee back to Texas? And then what? The immediate need was escape. 
He found the canyon and began to descend far faster than he'd risen. Brambles tugged at his jacket in the rucksack. He stumbled and fell rather than walked, his mind flailing between rage at Agnes and wonder at what she had shared. And yes, fear of getting caught. His trip to the bottom of the canyon took a third the time his ascent had required. He reached the neutron and only then took a moment to survey his surroundings. The patrol vehicles were far away up the ridge. It would take them 15 minutes to backtrack, hit the highway, and then drive south toward him. He had only one real escape route, though, and that was to drive a mile due west to that highway. Going east was a dead end. He clambered into the vehicle, fired it up, and carefully, and he hoped, quietly, backed around. As he followed the twisty dirt road toward the cast east-west road, a huge winged shape flew in front of him, so close and frightening that he slowed to a stop. The emotional bill for this misadventure arrived. He could not force himself to continue. He needed air. He needed time. He needed to see what that thing was. Out of the neutron, he rested against the side of the car, trying to breathe normally. Above him, several huge winged shapes blotted out the stars in the Milky Way. And then he knew. He had not thought of individual beacons as being the size of houses. And naturally, not already on Earth. He looked around at the hidden structures of Lamy and realized that they could easily be nests. He tapped his phone, Agnes being his last contact. To his surprise, she answered, How is the escape going? The two beacons fluttered to the ground some meters in front of him. I'd call it a failure. Don't reach for your gun, she said, just as he reached for the gun. If they wanted you dead, you'd be dead. I told you, they need a new human contact. And somehow I qualified? You're the only one who tried to kill me.